We've come to that point in our service where we open up the word together as a church. Um, hello, my name is Tar George. We haven't had the pleasure of meeting yet. I'm one of the people on staff here at Grace Toronto Church. Uh, and if you're just joining us, uh, welcome. We've been going through a special sermon series called Voices of Longing, uh, looking at some of the Psalms, uh, specifically in book three of the Psalms, and looking at uh, how, do, how do believers of old actually talk to God about what they're going through? How do they process some of their longings and desires? And so we're going to be doing that today, and this is the last uh, Psalm in that series. And so uh, please give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Uh, Hannah's going to be reading for us. Today's scripture scripture reading is from Psalm 88. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves, Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape, My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Hannah. This is probably one of the darkest psalms in the history of the psalm book. And so before we we get into it, mind if you join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this psalm. It is dark. I anticipate that as we enter into this morning that there are people who are feeling right now that they are in this darkness. There are other people who feel like they want nothing more than to distract themselves from this darkness. And so I pray that as we open up your word together, we would see it to be hopeful, and we would see it to be edifying, and that in all things you would be glorified as we read and study your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. You might recognize these iconic lyrics from Simon and Garfunkel's 1964 single, The Sound of Silence. 
It's a beautiful, poignant song that is well-loved by many, even to this day. But what you might not know about these lyrics is that they were allegedly coined through a powerful friendship that developed between Arthur Garfunkel and a man named Sandy Greenberg during their time at Columbia University. You see, it was this time that Sandy, at the age of 20, began to lose his vision rapidly. In his book titled, Hell or Darkness, My Old Friend, Sandy describes the sudden loss of his eyesight and what it did to him. He was at a baseball game when his eyes suddenly became cloudy and his vision became unfocused. He writes, shortly after that, a darkness descended. You see, Sandy was diagnosed with an aggressive form of glaucoma, and in the weeks that followed, it robbed him of everything he once held dear. His mind spiraled in the dark as he thought about his life, his aspirations, and his future, all of which had just disappeared right before his eyes. It was crushing, crushing to him. Never before had he felt so frightened, so alone, and so utterly helpless. And yet in the pit of his despair, he writes that there was one person, one person who was able to comfort him and lift him out of the darkness. It was his friend, Arthur Garfunkel. Sandy recalls emotionally the promise Arthur had made to him at the lowest point of his life. He said, I'll help you, Sandy. I'll be with you where you are, even in the black. It's a promise, you see, that carried Sandy through his most difficult years and proved to him that he was not, in fact, alone in his suffering. You know, as we come to our text this morning, I think the psalmist finds himself in a similar situation. Because like Sandy, his life is unraveling before his eyes, and he feels frightened, alone, and utterly in the dark. As a believer, I think he calls to mind his friendship with the Lord. He remembers that God has made him this same promise, a promise to help him, to strengthen him, and to be with him, even in the black. But after praying and praying and pouring out his heart to God, he's beginning to grow quite disillusioned. All he seems to hear in return is the crushing sound of silence. He concludes in verse 18 that darkness is his only friend. You know, wherever you are in your journey of faith this morning, I think this passage invites us to ask where God is in the midst of our suffering. Because as we'll see, the psalmist here models what it looks like for us to wrestle with God in the midst of life's most difficult seasons. Here in our passage, he explores three questions that I think we're tempted to ask when we're faced with true suffering. First, is God listening to me? Second, is God angry with me? And third, is God really and truly good? Is God listening to me? Is God angry with me? And is God really and truly good? You know, I think as we'll see, the answers to these questions are not always forthcoming in the moment. But on our closer inspection, I think we'll see how God is actually involved. Let's look with me at our first point. Well, you know, the context of Psalm 88 is quite important. If you've spent any time in the Psalms, you'll notice that there are quite a few laments in the book, several of which we've been looking at in our series. And one of the things you'll notice about each of these Psalms is that they typically describe what a believer is going through in very authentic, visceral language. A psalmist doesn't mince words while he prays. He says exactly what he's thinking and feeling. Maybe you've noticed that in the last several weeks. But the second thing you may have noticed about these lament psalms is that the grief experience is, is usually quite temporary. 
Each of these laments typically seem to end with some kind of glimmer of hope. A psalmist looks at a situation and he despairs, and yet at the end of each psalm, he somehow finds a way to look to God for encouragement. And if you read all the psalms carefully, you'll actually see this pattern of queer quite often. But not so with this psalm. Not so with this psalm. This psalm is one of two in the entire book that doesn't end that way. It doesn't. It starts with a tone of despair, and it just keeps getting worse and worse from there. In fact, at the end of the psalm, when the reader is expecting to receive some kind of hope and encouragement, the psalmist just dashes our expectations. The very last word in this psalm is this Hebrew word, mashak, which means darkness. That's how the psalm ends. That's how it ends. This is not a hopeful song by any means. It's extremely dark. There's no silver lining, no happy ending. You're just stuck with this terrible situation that doesn't necessarily appear to change or get any better. And it's precisely in those kinds of situations that we're left to wonder, what is God even doing at all? What is he doing? Is he actually really listening? I think the psalm wants to explore that question. Now, as you look at the psalm, we don't really know what's going on in the author's life, but whatever it is, there's something about his situation that has profoundly affected the way he relates to God. From the language of the psalm, it feels like death is very near to him. He mentions that actually several times. We might imagine that perhaps he's experiencing death in his community, or maybe he himself is quite near to death. You know, we don't know, but whatever the case, he's dealing with profound suffering. And he wants to know that God is listening and that he really cares. He begins in verse 1. He says, O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Day and night. Notice that he begins his prayer by remembering who God is. This is the God who has saved him, he says. And he's appealing to God because he finds himself in need of this deliverance once again. You see, he has an underlying belief that God cares about his suffering. And so God must care to listen to his prayer. He writes that my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. Sheol in the Hebrew Bible has this connotation of being the realm of the dead. There's something about this man's suffering that's so serious that he feels the terror of death looming all around him. He says, I am counted among those who go down to the pit, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more. I mean, this is gruesome. Gruesome, disturbing imagery. He envisions the stench of death being all around him, and it feels like it could claim him at any moment. You know, I don't think we fully comprehend the language of this psalm because death to us here is so clean, so proper, and so dignified in our culture. I think we lack the lens to properly appreciate this man's suffering and darkness. Some of you may remember... About a year ago, when COVID was ravaging India in the height of the pandemic, hospitals were at max capacity, oxygen tanks were depleted, and there were so many recorded deaths that grave sites, grave sites had actually run out. 
If you walk through the capital in Delhi in May of 2021, you would have been horrified by what you saw. You would have seen people languishing by the side of the road, people mourning over loved ones lost and the dead being piled on top of each other in trucks, rickshaws, and wooden carts. You would have seen bodies being burned in the street night and day for weeks on end. Can you picture that? If you were a person living in the city at that time, you lived in constant fear for your life. In a city of over 30 million people, you could well have been infected, wondering if you were going to die, while just outside, you would see the smoke and fire from funeral pyres rising up for miles. You would smell, you would smell the burning of flesh and see the streets littered with corpses and wonder in horror if your body would be laid there tomorrow. Can you imagine what that was like? Because that's how real and present that seems to be according to the psalmist. And the question he wants to know is this, in the midst of this gruesome, unimaginable suffering, is God actually listening? I think it's the first question we tend to ask when we're faced with such horrific suffering, isn't it? How can you endure suffering like that and feel even a shred of conviction that God is listening? And yet it might surprise you to learn that churches all across India were actually reading and praying through this psalm in the midst of this horrible tragedy. Why? It's this, because they understood that if God had given them these words to pray, then he most certainly stands ready to listen. You see, in this psalm, generations of Christians have found language to articulate to God what it is that they're going through. The very fact that God took this prayer and put it in the Bible means that he is listening. Prayers like this actually matter to God because we get to come to him with our deepest fears and disappointments. And look, listen, I would imagine that there are some of us here today who are going through some really painful, difficult things right now. You've wanted, like the psalmist, for the Lord to be this God of your salvation. But if you're really honest, that's not what you're experiencing in the moment, is it? Maybe you're coping with a debilitating illness, or you're drowning in financial debt, or you've been longing for a child or a partner. Maybe you're feeling really lonely or depressed, or you're scared because in your darkest moments, you find yourself thinking a whole lot about death. I think the psalmist would identify with you. I do. I want you to see that he feels those things so deeply. And yet, as we look at the psalm, we see this man crying out to God to listen. Look with me at the text. Verse 2, let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Verse 9, every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Verse 13, I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Do you see what he's doing? 
He's dealing with terrible grief, but he recognizes, he recognizes that having this God for salvation means that he also has this God for suffering. He cries out because he knows God will listen. And I think he wants you and I to know the same. This is our first point. You know, secondly, I think the psalmist wants to explore this question. Is God angry with me? Is God angry with me? You know, he acknowledges that the Lord is a God who listens. But like many of us, he's trying to square his circumstance with what he knows about God. If the Lord is truly this God of salvation, but I'm only feeling suffering, why is that? In the moment of weakness, I think he starts to wonder, is God angry with me? Is God angry with me? Maybe I'm suffering for a reason. If you read the passage, you'll notice a sudden shift in verses 6 to 8 where the psalmist begins using this almost accusative kind of tone. He begins listing all his problems and the way he is suffering. Except as he continues his prayer, he begins to directly attribute his pain to God. Do you see that? He says, you have put me in the depths of the pit. You have caused your companions to shun me. You have cast my soul away. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. God suddenly goes from being his savior only moments ago to now becoming his executioner. What's happening here? You see, grief is a complex thing, isn't it? I think the writer's mind starts to spiral. He begins thinking, there must be a reason for my suffering. Because all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the psalmist starts talking about God's wrath. He says, your wrath lies heavy upon me. You overwhelm me with all your waves. And again later, your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. I mean, this is really, really strong language. And if you were an original reader at the time, these these comments would strike you as being quite peculiar. Because in the Bible, believers understand that God's wrath is reserved only for the impenitent. It's this holy anger from God that's directed at people who disobey Him, reject His ways, and want nothing more to do with Him. They don't. And we know, we know that this isn't the case for the psalmist. He is a penitent believer, one whom God has personally saved. Having the Lord as the God of his salvation means explicitly that he has been saved from the wrath of God against sinners. So why does he feel this way? You see, it's grief. Deep and painful grief. In his despair, he starts to believe that God is intentionally punishing him. Perhaps he even deserves these afflictions. Have you ever felt that way? Has that ever crossed your mind when you're going through something really painful? I mean, look, the the psalmist is suffering terribly, and he's wondering, is God angry with me for sin or some other reason? Did I do something to deserve this? I don't think so. I don't think so. You see, in some Psalms, like 85 last week, it's very clear that a person or persons are suffering because of disobedience. They've done something individually or corporally that has rightfully made God angry. And the psalm presents that as a reason for God's distance. 
However, when we look at this psalm, this, that doesn't appear to be the case. Not at all. He doesn't appear to confess or know of any area of sin in his life, which you typically actually find in other psalms. Rather, his issue here is that he perceives his suffering to somehow be indicative of God's anger. And I want to be very clear that God does take sin very seriously. As we heard from Pastor Jeff last week, sin angers God. And in the Bible, you find that there are consequences for sin. But to believe that every kind of suffering we experience in this life has to do with God's anger, I think, would be inappropriate. And yet often, I find that many of us aren't really sure what to make of long periods of suffering. It feels like there's something about our circumstances that tempt us to question our standing with God. We often wrongfully assume that if I'm happy, healthy, and wealthy, then God must be completely and utterly pleased with me. And if I'm sick, sad, or suffering, God must be really angry. But is that how God operates? Is that how God is? Not at all. Not at all. God isn't like that. But here's the really astonishing thing about this text. In this psalm, you see God giving this man the freedom to say some pretty audacious things, even though they're not actually true. I mean, if you were God and you wanted to write a book that told people about who you are and what it means to follow you, would you include this psalm? Probably not. Probably not. Unless God knew that this would be a fairly common experience for people sometimes. Look, God's concern in including this prayer in the Bible is not to preserve his reputation or to protect his image. I want you to see from this text that God is not angry with this man. He's really not. But in his forbearance and compassion, he actually allows this man to be angry at him. Like, what a role reversal. And remarkably, God even chose to preserve these words and teach them to the church so that you and I could speak to God also, even in the depths of our hearth, like this. Do you follow me? Listen, I know that there are some of you who are deeply frustrated with God right now because it feels like he's not been good to you or he's taken something away from you or he's allowing you to experience something really painful. And you've thought about it, and you think the best thing that you can do for yourself right now is just to clam up and bottle it all in because that's what it means to be really godly. I want you to see from this text that that is not at all what God has asked of you. Sometimes, as this psalm shows us, it's a far better thing to actually talk to God about how we're feeling. C.S. Lewis, one of the champions of the faith, I think gives us one such example. At one of the lowest points in his life, he actually wrote these words. Go to God when your need is desperate, and all other hope is in vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away because the longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. Let me ask you, does that sound to you like the words of a champion of the faith? 
Have you ever felt that way in your walk with the Lord? I think this psalm is giving us a certain freedom to speak to God candidly. I do. And listen, what the psalmist is saying here in this passage is not theologically accurate or true, but God knows that he needs to say it. God is saying, you can tell me how you're feeling without needing to be theologically correct. I think the psalm gives us language and a lens through which to approach God in really difficult seasons. Because if you can believe it, that's actually, actually the most godly thing you can do when you're faced with suffering. Why? Because you are choosing with every fiber of your being to engage with God rather than to disengage. And that, my friends, makes every bit of difference. If you talk to any good marriage counselor, they will tell you that it's not the absence of fighting and yelling that proves that a marriage is healthy. Conflict is important, and we need to be able to tell the other person how we're actually feeling. The relationship is not helped by two people disengaging from each other. You understand that. In fact, conversely, sometimes when a couple has decided that they no longer care to fight is when they've actually decided that there's nothing in their relationship worth fighting for any longer. You wouldn't want that in a marriage. So you ought not to accept that in your faith. If it's not healthy in your relationship with a spouse, it's not healthy in your relationship with the Lord. You see, in this psalm, we see God giving this man freedom to actually process his feelings, and it's marvelous. I want you to know he's not suffering because God is angry with him, but God invites him to actually speak out of his pain, and he invites you and I to do the very same thing. This is our second point. You know, thirdly, I think the psalmist here also wants to explore this question. Is God really, is God really and truly good? Does he know what he's doing? Can I actually trust that in the midst of my suffering, he has a good plan for my life? If you read this passage, you'll notice another shift in verses 10 to 12 where the psalmist begins asking a set of rhetorical questions. He begins reflecting again on God's character and his kingdom trying to figure out how does my suffering fit into the bigger picture. Look with me at the text. He says in verse 10, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon, the place of destruction? God, are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? I listen to him. He's basically asking, what's the point of my suffering, God? How does this benefit anyone? Why would you allow this in my life? And that's the real question, isn't it? I think Christians and skeptics alike have often wrestled equally with this idea. It's difficult. Really, really difficult. But here's what I know to be true. One of the things you will come to realize as you read the book of Psalms and indeed the whole Bible is that suffering and salvation are not in fact at odds with each other. And that matters profoundly because we often have this idea that God's sole and primary purpose is only to alleviate my suffering. That's what God's all about. 
And if he's not alleviating my suffering, then one of four things must automatically be true about God. He either doesn't exist, or he doesn't care, or he's not in control, or he must not be very good. But here's the problem with that thinking. It presupposes that God could never turn suffering into any good. It presumes that a life without suffering is the greatest good that God could possibly do for you. And that's just not true. Even when you read this terrible, awful psalm. One of the things I find so fascinating about this passage, listen, is that the author doesn't actually petition God to alleviate his suffering. Have you ever noticed that? Most of his prayers are a description of what he's going through and how he feels. We might expect to hear him asking God to save him or to change his situation or to take away his suffering. But for whatever reason, he doesn't do that. Instead, the only petition you will find in this psalm is this one line in verse 2, let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? The one thing he wants God to do for him in the midst of his suffering is just to remember him. Just look at me and remember me, God. Like what? Are you serious right now? That's what he wants. That's what he wants. And it's the most stunning aspect about this entire prayer. Like what is wrong with this man? Doesn't he want his suffering to end? Let me tell you, I think this guy knows what's up. I do. He realizes that his salvation is secure eternally with God, and nothing can shake that. But for whatever reason, God is allowing the suffering in his life right now. And the most important thing, listen, the most important thing that matters to him in the moment is actually not that his situation should change, but that he would, in his situation, feel that he matters to God. Like, wow, what a prayer. Do you see that in this text? He's saying, I'm going through something terrible right now, but that's not even the real concern. If I could just know that my suffering has some meaning and that you're actually with me, I think, maybe, maybe I could be okay. Do you see what he's saying? Because it's so important that we get this. The psalmist understands that what he needs most in the midst of terrible darkness is not less of his suffering, but more of his Savior. He doesn't need less suffering. He needs more of God. Do you follow me? He's wanting to feel God's presence intimately. He's saying, God, just help me. Just help me understand what you're doing because this doesn't seem to make much sense. Look at me again at verses 10 to 12. He's saying, do you care about praise and worship? Well, I was trying to do that before you brought this calamity upon me. You want to show people your wonders? Who's going to see that in the grave? You want me to declare your steadfast love? How do I do that if I'm dead? Nothing about my situation makes any sense. 
God, I was serving you and writing the most excellent psalms of praise and worship, but do you know what I feel like writing right now? And God whispered inaudibly, yes, yes, I do. Is it the darkest, most painful psalm in the history of all my scriptures? Yes, I want you to write that because your words are going to help my people persevere in their suffering until that day when I will suffer on their behalf. Men and women, you need to know that the psalmist only caught a glimpse of the hope that was laid before him. It is my privilege to tell you that in the gospel, God didn't leave you in the dark. He didn't. He made a plan to save people, not just from the pains of earthly suffering, you understand, but from the powers of sin, death, and eternal suffering. You see, what the psalmist only experienced subjectively in our passage, Jesus experienced objectively when he came to save us from our sins. It was Jesus who was counted among the dead, Jesus who truly took the wrath of God, and Jesus who was slain and laid in the grave. Christ faced the real darkness that separated us from God, and it's because of him the Bible says we have salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. Because look, three days after Jesus died, God made good on this promise to the psalmist. He worked a wonder for the dead, and he declared his steadfast love even in the grave. You see, the reason we ultimately know that God is listening to us is because he sent his son to experience all the pains and hardships of this world, all the things that you and I are coping with. The reason we know that God is not angry with us is because he poured out all his wrath upon Jesus at the cross. And the reason we know that God is really and truly good is because he raised this same Jesus to life and has made him, the Lord Jesus, now the God of our salvation. This is the hope laid up for you in Psalm 88. Well, how do we apply this psalm? What might God be asking us to do from this text? Well, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you've heard a lot today about suffering. I think this psalm shows us somewhere productive that we can go with our despair and our disappointments. It's at the throne of God. I think the psalm encourages you to reach out to him, not just in view of your present circumstances, but also in view of eternity. I encourage you to go home and read this psalm with fresh eyes. And as you do that, as you do that, I want you to know that Jesus has undergone this darkness for you in human history so that you can experience the love of God. There, Christian here. Well, there's a lot that can be said about Psalm 88, but here are three principles from this text for you to apply. First, persevere in the faith. Persevere in the faith. It's possible that some of you, I think, may find yourselves in really difficult situations right now. As this psalm shows us, I think it's possible to believe, be a believing Christian and still experience periods of darkness in your life. However, when it comes, I think it's important, I think it's so important that you remind yourself of the hope of the gospel and what Christ has done on your behalf. 
Christian, if God didn't abandon you to the eternal darkness, do you think for a moment that he would forget you and the lesser things of your day-to-day life? He will not. If you can trust him with your salvation, then you can most certainly trust him with your suffering. And so you remember that and you hold fast in the faith. Second, pray like the psalmist. I think the psalm gives us language to be really honest with God about what we're feeling. God understands that suffering shrinks our view of him and makes us ask really tough questions. And so you go to him with those. Engage with him and don't disengage. If there's something that you're wrestling with that you need prayer for, you need support, please come find us after the service. We'd love to listen to you and pray for you. And finally, third, pursue others. Pursue others. Several times throughout this psalm, you'll notice the psalmist laments not having friends to surround him and bear him up in his time of hardship. I want to tell you that each of you here in this church are the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. And how a person feels about their suffering while they attend here is a reflection of the kind of body we are or we aren't becoming. Grace Toronto, it is your God-given responsibility to extend generous and meaningful friendship to each other. So you make it your goal not to be alone, not to cop out, but to really invest in other brothers and sisters here. Don't you be shallow. It's not what God has called you to. Listen to each other. Pray for one another. Tell each other what's really hard right now. And practice hospitality. Let's be a more gospel-centered community. You know, finally, I want to end with this. I want to end with this. Remember that promise that Arthur Garfunkel made to Sandy Greenberg? He said, I'll help you, Sandy. I'll be with you where you are, even in the black. You know, true to his word, Arthur did help his blind friend. He read to him, sang to him, took care of all of his needs, and led him wherever and whenever he needed to go. There's one day, however, when Sandy recounts how Arthur abandoned him at Grand Central Station in the peak of rush hour. Sandy recalls, I was terrified, stumbling and falling all by myself. I cut my forehead, I cut my shins, my socks were bloodied. I had my hands out in front of me and I bumped into a woman's breast. It was a horrendous feeling of shame and humiliation. I started running forward, knocking over coffee cups and briefcases, and somehow, somehow, I finally got on the train and found my way back home. It was the worst couple of hours of my entire life. When Sandy finally made it back to campus, suddenly he bumped into a man. He writes, I knew it was Arthur's voice. For a moment, I was enraged. Why on earth had he left me? And then I had understood what had happened. You see, Arthur had not abandoned his friend at the station but had followed him the entire way home, watching over him every step of the way. Sandy, reflecting on the experience afterward, wrote, that moment, that moment, 
was a spark that caused me to live my life completely different, without fear, without doubt. He continues, my friend had in fact lifted me out of the grave. Men and women, I need you to know that this is precisely what God has done for us. And I grant you that you may feel that you're alone right now, stumbling through the dark with bruised and bloodied feet. But a day is coming when you will finally make your way home and you will hear the voice of Christ, your closest friend, saying to you, I never left you. See, I have brought you safely home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm, although it is entrenched in deep, deep darkness. We thank you that you are following us all the way home, and that you are not leaving us or abandoning us. Father, in our darkness, help us to reach out to you. Help us to cling to Christ. I pray that you would meet us and you would give us courage, strength, and the ability to carry on. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, ordinarily at the end of the service, we have uh, time for Q&A, but in light of the psalm and some of the heaviest heaviness of uh, this text, I'd ask you to sit and think and reflect on some of the darkness that may be in your life or in others that you know. If you have questions or comments or things that you'd like to talk about afterwards, I invite you to email me at tark at gracetoronto.ca, and I'd love to dialogue with you. Would you please take some time to silently spend some time and thinking about this with God?